This is The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Good morning, it's John Moore. This is The Breakfast Wrap for Monday, November 28th. The weather forecast for today looks like we're going to have cloudy skies, the high plus four degrees. Here are the five things you need to know. Number one, Canada bounced out of the World Cup of Soccer. Number two, Durham District School Board is recovering from a cyber attack. Number three, a vacant homeless encampment erupts in flames on Bathurst Street. Number four, Canada Post laying on some Christmas surcharges. And number five, the word of the year, gaslighting. The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. 5.08 on a Monday morning, our last Monday in November, as a matter of fact. I think officially the countdown to Christmas is uh, definitely on. A lot of people in the Christmas mood. I know some people have already been to the distillery district in Christmastown, and there's all kinds of other gathering places. Um, so, yes, uh, it's a, a great Monday, unless you are a Canadian soccer fan, in which case you're probably still a little bitterly disappointed about yesterday's loss. We were sitting in a pub watching the game, and... You know, the eruption when Canada scored that first goal was amazing. And I know a lot of people are making a big deal out of the fact that there it is, Canada's first goal ever scored at the um, FIFA World Cup. But let's face it, there's got to be some degree of disappointment about the fact that uh, we've now lost two games in a row and officially we're out. We'll get more of a description of exactly how things went yesterday and what the way forward is when TSN's Matt Cause joins us at 8.05 this morning. But yeah, we would have liked Canada to have done a little better. And I'll leave it to people who are much more knowledgeable about soccer and sports to establish whether or not we're being a little too Canadian in all of this. And like, well, we tried hard. We, we at least we got there. And well, we, we managed to play two games. We looked feisty. Okay. But... At the same time, at one point yesterday in the analysis, um, one of the women from our women's soccer team, which actually has an incredible, formidable record. I mean, they won gold at the Olympics. And uh, somebody was touting how incredible it was that Canada's men's team had scored that goal. And wasn't this the greatest moment in Canadian soccer history? And the look on her face is hilarious. You can see it on social media. People caught a, uh, a grab image from the video and she's just like dude um no i don't think that's the greatest moment in canadian soccer history to be perfectly honest so uh that's where we are on this monday there's one more game to go but uh by the numbers we're we're already out and i already heard some people saying hey here's to four years from now okay yeah here's to four years from now but that's a that's a pretty long time so uh lots of things to talk about this morning including a cyber attack, and one has to wonder what the rest of this story is, a cyber attack on the Durham District School Board. Okay, so was it mischief, or are we not being told that maybe there was a ransom demand? But anyway, you slice it, they have some challenges today. Apparently, uh, according to the copy I'm looking at, it says, most student Chromebooks won't be working. Okay, help me out here, because I don't have kids in school, and when I went to school, it was all about the Hillary notebook and a pen or a pencil. 
You can even have uh, could not even have a calculator in your in school when we went in the seventies. Yeah. Well, I mean, a calculator back then was this massive book-sized thing. Um, you know. Uh, anyway, um, so if you want to uh, fix my wagon, can, can somebody let me know? Does every single kid have a computer now? I know at the um, spoiled, rotten private school around the corner from where I live, all the kids have computers, but that's not much of a surprise if you're going to a private school. Um, but here's the thing. Durham District School Board is recovering from what they call a cyber incident, and so they don't have access to phone or email services. So without offering instruction to mischief this morning, it would seem that if today you wanted to play hooky, nobody's going to have the means of reporting it. Uh, a letter to parents and guardians was sent out yesterday, and the board said they first figured out that they were being hacked on Friday. So school is going to go ahead today. Um, but I love this. They're taking manual attendance. Like that is some sort of an ancient ritual. And anyway, they'll do manual attendance. And if you want your uh, school to have access to an emergency number, then you're going to have to write it down on a piece of paper and stuff it in your kid's pocket and have them present it when they get to school today. I think we're going to make it through this. Um, it isn't really the greatest level of, uh, of deprivation. Meanwhile, still processing this morning because we didn't have a chance to talk about this on Friday because it happened after the show. But Justin Trudeau's appearance at the Emergencies Act inquiry. And much as predicted on Friday on our show, I had said, you know, if you're preparing for Justin Trudeau to always fall flat on his face, then you're anticipating something that may not happen, in which case it will not be a particularly satisfying situation. Uh, Nick, throw in number 21 here. Um, Justin Trudeau on Friday, you know, I took a lot of flack on the weekend on Twitter when I observed that following that appearance, I still don't think the legal threshold for the Emergencies Act was met. But this government is just going to keep soldiering on. And Justin Trudeau, four and a half hours of testimony on Friday. And for the most part, it broke his way. You see a situation that is an emergency, is out of control, is has a potential for real impact on citizens, potential for violence, uh, real concerns about what's going on, not just in Ottawa, but right across the country. Coots blockade that started up uh, on the same first weekend uh, that the Ottawa uh, occupation did. These are the things that you say, okay, as we look at a whole range of potential outcomes in this, there might be a moment where we have to invoke the Emergencies Act. And so then you get into this highly pointy-headed discussion. And I guess the problem, like the reason I took so much flack on the weekend, it was like, oh, so you did, you like the trucker protest or, oh, your libertarian sensibilities, blah, blah, blah. No, listen, if you want to talk legalities, which ultimately the judge in this case is going to have to do, then you have to get into whether or not the threshold, the actual definition uh, that calls for the invocation of the Emergencies Act was met. And I don't think it was. Did we have to clear out the blockades? Absolutely. Did we have to clear the yobs from the streets of Ottawa? Yes. Um, but could that have been done without the declaration of the Emergencies Act is going to come down to just how 
incredibly incompetent was the Ottawa police force? Were they beyond redemption? Was there absolutely no way they were going to be able to do the job on their own without the Emergencies Act? Because the question you have to ask moving forward is, do you want that act to be declared again? And if so, under what circumstances? Time now to say good morning to John Moore, News Talk Radio 1010. See what's on his mind today. Start the week. Good morning, John. Good morning, George. Nice to be here, and welcome to the airwaves of News Talk 1010. Hey, welcome to our show, too. It's good to have you, John. Uh, let's start here. Uh, Durham District School Board hacked. Yeah, this is uh, seems to be one of those situations where it's like when the power goes out and everybody discovers the art of conversation. Uh, they got hacked on Friday. We don't know if they were held at ransom or if it was a case of mischief. But, for example, today, if you want your kids to have an emergency contact number, you should probably write it down on a piece of paper and stuff it into their pockets and they can present it when they get to school. And, George, this will be kind of a romantic occasion for people your or my age. They will be taking manual attendance today. Day because they can't do it digitally. Wow. Hey, di analog kids in a digital world, at least for a couple of days anyway. We'll yeah, I know. Wow. <laughs> uh, all right, so there was an explosion under uh, the bridge at Bathurst, and now the source confirmed by TFS. Yeah, uh, this seems to have been a homeless encampment. However, it may have been unoccupied at the time of the fire. We don't know the exact origin of the fire, but we do know um, that there were canisters of explosive gases on the scene. It's some pretty extraordinary video. And another example of, I, I think, at the very least, how these homeless encampments can often be a danger and certainly a fire trap, because we've had a few of these fires break out, and they are subject to visits by Toronto Fire Services on frequent occasions just to try to tamp this sort of thing down. Expletive deleted, Canada defeated. The World Cup dreams are dashed. Oh, I know. Rouge. Yeah. It's a, a serve up the cocoa as a consolation, I guess. But yeah, we lost. We scored that first goal and people all over Canada, especially right here in Toronto. I was in a pub yesterday watching this on oh, four man, big screens. Was Everybody was delighted. And then we went on to lose for Zip. There's one more game to be played, but by technical numbers, we're already out. And I guess now let the forensics begin. However, it's also worth noting that Canada's men's team ended up getting $10.5 million for their appearances. Right. And that will go towards, you know, the future and building this uh, great game up because mm -hmm. we've become a soccer factory, just like tennis and and uh, basketball, it's incredible what's going on here. Uh, and finally, we'll, we'll end with this one, John. Sending a package to Canada Post, it's gonna cost you a little more this holiday season, how come? Just in time for Christmas, I guess we could say Canada Post is kind of playing Grinch. Uh, customers will be, be paying an additional 39.5% in surcharges if you send a domestic parcel. So uh, this is all about fuel and the fact that the cost of fuel is up. So Canada Post, and this is one of the great trivia items about Canada Post, incidentally, largest fleet of corporate trucks in the country is Canada Post. And so they're trying to make up their fuel costs. All right. John, always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Have yourself a great day and a great show. We'll check in tomorrow. That is our friend George Lagajanis over at CP24, our sister TV station. One story we did not get to that was uh, on the agenda this morning was the word of the year has been revealed by Marion Webster. And the way they do this, actually, is not sitting around in a room and saying, hey, how can we get some press attention? It's based on people who go to Merriam-Webster online and what they search for. And you know what the word this year is? Gaslighting. And gaslighting 
you got to go back in time in order to get to the origins of the word. It actually stems back to a play, 1938, and it's about a man who's trying to drive his wife crazy. So what he does is he keeps on turning the gas lights in their home down. And so things are getting dimmer and dimmer. And every time she says, it seems dim in here, he says, you're crazy. And so gaslighting, the whole notion is, is when people tell you things that may be fundamentally untrue, but they keep on trying to intimidate you into believing them, most often applied in a political context. Speaking of political context, I honestly believe that if you want to call it a crossing of the Rubicon, you can call it whatever you want. But I think Donald Trump came to the end of his runway this weekend. Donald Trump had dinner at Mar-a-Lago with Kanye West, or Ye, as he's known. And Kanye West is very clearly sort of a la Charlie Sheen in um, uh, some kind of a mental episode where people should probably just stop engaging and certainly stop treating him as a uh, reliable source or even as some sort of a political actor. But it's not Kanye West that is the problem here. There was another guy named Nick Fuentes who was there. And in order to tell you how despicable, hateful, and attention-seeking Nick Fuente is, I'll tell you that I've never, in spite of the fact that I come across him quite frequently on social media, I've never played a clip of him on the show because he is like categorically the most anti-Semitic, anti-woman, anti-gay, um, you name it. I mean, to the point of he makes Alex Jones seems, seem rational. And then he and Kanye West ended up having dinner with um, Donald Trump. And you can't, that's not recoverable. That's, and, and he said, well, I didn't know who he was. Everybody knows who he is. And if you're an ex-president, don't you Google somebody before you have dinner with them, before you welcome them in, into your offices? But even before that, I think the drift had begun with the results of the midterm elections. So it's kind of a relief, actually, because it means the serious candidates and contenders now can start girding up and getting ready to run. I guess there's a bit of a hangover for a lot of people today in reflecting on Canada at the World Cup. And I'll let genuine soccer enthusiasts weigh in and dominate the conversation. But, you know, I think we're, we're perhaps comforting ourselves in trying to curl up like a, it's a teddy bear with the notion that we scored our first goal at the FIFA Cup. So therefore, it was an amazing day. We still lost, but Alfonso Davies is the guy who scored it, and he is Canada's national soccer hero. We did our best. We, we, we fought every single minute. But I guess, uh, you know, this game is about, you know, winning, especially in this tournament, and we needed those three points. And, yeah, we're looking forward to the next game, and hopefully we can get something out of that. All right, so unfortunately, if I understand the thing, and Matt Cause can explain in great detail at 8.05 when he joins us, but I think statistically we're done, uh, even though there's one more match, and I guess maybe we can all gather together and watch that match and have a good time and then take stock of where we are and think about four years from now or the Olympics. You're listening to The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. 5.37 is the time. New book about the Queen. It's interesting. There's been two biographies published just within a matter of weeks. One of them was by the author of the biography of Princess Diana. 
And uh, we had him on the show quite recently. There's now another one, though, that is uh, offering, and it's you know, I, I, don't, I won't say the source is dubious, but it's not exactly double source journalism. However, it might explain a few things. You always remember when you were a kid and somebody would pass away and you'd ask your parents what had happened and they would say they died of old age. It's usually something a little bit more complicated than old age. And the assertion in this new biography is that Queen Elizabeth actually was battling a serious form of cancer in the last period of her life. Here with details about something that is making headlines all over the UK and all over the world is Corin Hall, our royal correspondent. Corin, always a pleasure. Good morning. Good morning, John. Tell me about this latest uh, biography. Uh, who wrote it and what do they know? Right. Well, it was written by a guy called Giles Brandreth, who was a great friend of the Duke of Edinburgh and has been quite close to the royal family. He has known various members like Camilla and the late Queen as well and Prince Philip, as I said. And he was also a member of Parliament. And he's got connections also into society. He's written a number of books on the rules over the years, usually fairly gossipy sort of books, really. But what he's come up with this time is that he's heard that the Queen had a form of myeloma, which is a rare form of bone cancer. And that's what explains the mobility problems. Apparently, the common, one of the common symptoms is bone pain, and especially in the back and in the legs. Now, if you've got something like that, that's going to help not going to help with mobility, is it? And we all thought there was more than this mobility issue because, I mean, they could have just put her in a wheelchair and or she could have used a walking stick a lot more. There were ways around things, but all these things being cancelled at the last moment, they say it explains the tiredness, the weight loss, and, as I said, the mobility issues that she'd been having in those final few months. This is what Giles Brandreth has heard. Whether it's true or not, we don't know. But if so, it certainly explains a lot of things that have been going on. It also sort of frames, I guess, the Queen's stoicism in all of this. I, like, none of us yeah. are ever going to forget the fact that she managed to meet two prime ministers two days before she died. That's right, yes. And everybody noticed that bruise on her hand. And they were saying, is it a, was it a cannula? Or was it just the bruise that, you know, the sort of bruises that old people get? Now everybody's wondering. No, I don't think anybody actually believed that she just died of old age. Because she'd been so stoic, she'd always carried on, she was always there. And for it to be so sudden like that, and then say, oh, it's old age, nobody actually believed it. And they're looking for explanations, and I think this is probably one of the best we've had yet. Also in the book, Corin, I understand there is um, some explanation of the Queen and Philip, in spite of their lengthy marriage, spending very, very little time together close to the end of his life. Well, I think what happened was that Philip wanted to retire. And he'd been with the Queen, as we know, for, by that time, 70 years. And the Queen wanted the him to have the chance to do things his way. He'd always been there two steps behind her, always had to do what everybody else wanted. She wanted him to have the chance just for once to do what he wanted. So he went off to Wood Farm at Sandringham, moved into a little cottage there, and lived his own life, which was fine until lockdown came. And then they decided, let's do this together and be at Windsor together, whatever happens which was a good thing because they were together, as, it, as everyone knows, when he finally died. But I think that's what it was. It was the Queen giving him chance to do things as he wanted. And, I mean, they spoke on the phone every day. 
but it was just giving him the time to sit and read a book, go out walking, do whatever he wanted to do without having to worry about the rest of the world. Corin, thank you very much. Nice to have you. Very nice to talk to you again, John. Bye-bye. Corin Hall, our royal correspondent, also author of quite a few books about uh, various royal families, and she's got a brand new one coming out in the spring. We'll do a special interview when that happens. But it's all about uh, Felix Yusupov, who was one of the uh, princes in pre-Soviet Russia, who participated in the murder of Rasputin, amongst other things. But uh, he and his wife, both uh, remarkable characters. Uh, In all the fixation and focus this morning on Canada at the FIFA World Cup of Soccer, uh, numerous people pointing out to me, of course, that we're forgetting that Canada actually had a grand weekend in sport, and that would be Canada winning the Davis Cup. Now, again... I got no special insight on this one, so maybe we'll ask Matt Cause if he can weigh in on it. Uh, But Canada winning its first Davis Cup title on Sunday, beating Australia uh, behind victories from Denis Shapovalov and Felix Auger-Aliassim. So there is much joy in Mudville over that, even if a lot of other people are still nursing um, their scars and regrets about Canada at the the FIFA Cup in Qatar. This is one of those stories where you really want to know more, and I guess eventually we will. But we have a series of violent home invasions in Markham. And in one case, these people tell this incredibly dramatic story about how essentially it was a group of people who were raiding their house. And they came in through the back door. They came in through the front door. They were armed eventually um, to of the home invaders were shot in a standoff with police, one of them fatally. So there there has to be considerably more to this story. In my experience reporting on this sort of thing, um, people don't generally do home invasions at random. Like they don't really do them because they want your Rolex. There's something personal involved, a previous association or something that you are holding that they want, uh, but it doesn't just seem to happen randomly. Um, But a lot of people in the community saying they were absolutely terrified in the wake of several homes uh, being invaded. Meanwhile, uh, in China, as you've probably been noting through the weekend in the news and on social media, um, they're kind of putting their feet down when it comes to China's zero tolerance policy in trying to, actually it's officially called zero COVID policy, in trying to crack down on COVID. And they seem to have reached a breaking point where people are protesting in cities all across China, resisting police when they are engaged, and then also posting all kinds of things online. And in China, like many repressive regimes, they have, you know, whole war rooms full of people going through social media and deleting things as fast as they are posted. But, you know, I remember reading an account of what happened in Egypt when they had the uprising in Egypt, and sadly, it did not succeed. But it actually became fuel for the fire whenever they would shut down social media, and in particular, uh, Facebook. Because, yes, that denies people the ability to connect and to organize and to say, you know, meet us over here and we're going to have this protest on Tuesday. But when you deprive people 
of those media, you only hammer home the fact that they are that much oppressed by their own government. So in the long run, it actually contributes to um, people uh, kicking back. Subscribe today and always hear the latest episode of The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. The word of the year is gaslighting. It's, I feel like we're paying, playing, uh, what is it, pass game, password? And the password is. And the password is. I love watching those uh, hoary old game shows, either of the original vintage or the new versions of them. To tell the truth kills me. Will the real John Moore please stand up? Well, that's the thing. Uh, for those who haven't watched To Tell the Truth, they'll bring three people out and they'll say, one of these people is a professional wig maker. And then people will ask them questions. And it's fun to watch and fun to play along because... One of the tells often is that they're too good at talking about something. And then you think, okay, this is just too heavily prepared. But then they, when they reveal, you got the three people and they play this silly music and each of them stands up one at a time and then they keep going. And then two of them sit down and one of them is revealed to be the person. But then one of the things they do on that same show is they reveal that one of the other people on the panel is, you know, is like an embalmer or something. It's like, okay, the wig maker was interesting, but I want to talk to the embalmer. Okay, uh, back to news items, and uh, we'll get back to a couple of the things you heard about and the five things you need to know. Again, you know, there's a bunch of stories I'm hoping we manage to inform and, and sort of color inside the lines of today because there are a lot that are just broad strokes, like the encampment fire on the weekend. And if you've seen the video of this, uh, it's a pretty dramatic fire. But according to the account I'm looking at, it was a vacant homeless encampment. So how did the fire start? And I think some pretty serious questions should also be asked about, okay, so if it was an abandoned homeless encampment, why were there still uh, containers of explosive chemicals there? Um, but a spokesperson for Toronto Fire Services said a small fire started at a vacant encampment under the Bathurst Street Bridge at Fort York uh, Boulevard. The fire spread through the encampment, spokesperson says, causing propane in several propane tanks to boil and expand, resulting in what firefighters call a boiling liquid expanding vapor explosion. That's pretty dramatic stuff, very technical terms for something that if you have seen the video, and we'll do our best if we've got the rights to it, to share that on our social media platforms, but it's, uh, it was some pretty fierce fire to the point where they had to reevaluate on Sunday, the integrity of the bridge to make sure that everything's okay. Uh, firefighters saying the encampment is now unlivable, as if any encampment has ever really been all that livable. Um, but again, I think we have to come back to the fact that was anybody present there at the time of the fire, um, in which case it wasn't vacant. Uh, then we have the Durham District School Board and the detail we need to fill in here is whether or not, you know, it was a, somebody wreaking mischief or somebody was um, enslaving their computers in order to then charge them a ransom. But the uptake is, or the outcome of all of this is, the hack happened on Friday, but they're still dealing with it today. However, school's in session. I know, I just disappointed tens of thousands of children, I'm sure. Uh, but school is definitely in session. It's just that if they need an emergency number, they will not have access to it. If a kid does not turn up for school today, 
then they do not have the means of accounting for that. Or again, if it's like a non-custodial parent or something like that, um, they won't be able to get in touch with the parent uh, who is the custodial parent to say, by the way, your kid's not here today. So, I mean, that's something to be on the lookout for, but I think it's also a degree of concern trolling to suggest that if we go back to an old system like this, which all of us grew up under, that necessarily anybody's personal safety is is going to be compromised. Looking forward to hearing what Scott Reed has to say. I was following him and a lot of people on Friday as they live tweeted the Prime Minister's appearance. The appearance before the inquiry into the Declaration of the Emergencies Act was scheduled to go for two hours, but I guess Justin Trudeau decided, fine, let's ride this out. Everybody, you can all have your go. And you can say, if you want, that he was carefully prepared, which he was. And uh, he came, but he also, you know, with tons of preparation. And as Scott had indicated, when we were talking to him before the appearance, he said, you know, part of the training that you go through for an appearance like this one is about the tone that you're going to take and even the posture that you're going to sit in. Um, and, you know, are you going to be aggressive? Are you going to be combative? Are you just, are you going to be patient? And if you're too patient, do you look like you're being evasive? Justin Trudeau, I know it hurts people who don't like Justin Trudeau to hear this, but performed magnificently on Friday and mostly uh, held the, the tone I'm sure that he came with, but he was, he answered the questions and he stuck to the message which was, I didn't want to do this, but I had to do this. And Nick, we have enough time here to throw in another one of these clips. Actually, 24, I think, is, as Andrew Sullivan would say, the money clip. Here we go. I'm not going to pretend that it's the only thing that could have done it, but it did do it. And that colors the conversations we're having now with the fact that these could be very different conversations. And I am absolutely serene and confident that I made the right choice. And the judge may say, you know what, this is such a, a serious power that I don't think it should have been invoked under these circumstances. But the flip side, and I think the takeaway for most Canadians is certainly polling shows a majority of Canadians, the protests had to end, the blockades had to come down, and so the right, the right outcome was met. Then you get into the whole legality and specificity of whether or not the threshold for invoking these powers was ever reached. Um, you know, in an historic analysis, because I was a kid at the time, I would still say that we didn't need the War Measures Act in 1970 and that it was a gross violation of people's civil rights. And yet, an overwhelming majority of Canadians then and now still think that was the right thing to do. And I think that moving forward, a majority of Canadians are still going to say, you know, notwithstanding the, the hand-wringing of civil libertarians, all we wanted was for the protests to end. That's The Breakfast Wrap. Thanks a lot for listening. My name is John Moore. I hope we'll talk again soon. You've been listening to The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Don't forget to subscribe and get the latest episode from wherever you get your podcasts. And listen weekday mornings from 5 to 9 on News Talk 1010.